2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Philip Lance, and I'm a host of the channel. Today, I'm interviewing Darian Leader about his book, Jouissance Sexuality, Suffering, and Satisfaction. And it was published by Polity Press in 2021. So, Darian uh, is a psychoanalyst working in London and a member of the Center for Freudian Analysis and Research. His books include, among among others, What is Madness, Hands, and Why We Can't Sleep. Um, And just so people know, this is a ridiculously short introduction to a a man who's quite prominent uh, in the Lacanian world. But uh, we'll let his interview sort of, his substance come through in the interview, and, and you'll get a sense of who he is. So um, welcome to the program, Darian.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Philip. Good to be on your show. Thank you.
2: And I always start by just asking a real simple question. I guess it's simple. Why did you write this book?
1: I wrote the book because it seemed as if what was becoming the most common currency in Lacanian psychoanalysis, the term's resource and the vocabulary associated with it, was being used in a hardly rigorous way, in a kind of lazy way, and it was becoming more and more of a descriptive term. So we were losing out on all the questions that had presumably inspired the introduction of this term in the first place. So it seemed to me that the real research questions that had been so important in psychoanalysis until probably the 1960s were being eclipsed by a new fancy, voguish language. And so the book is really an attempt to get people to rethink some of the terms that we use, and in particular, all the questions around pleasure, pain, and satisfaction that were apparently the focus of the Lacanian term when it was originally introduced.
2: Yeah, and you you, you mentioned that it, it's it has been used only descriptively. And so when I first came across that in the book, I thought, well, what does he mean by that? But I think I'm not going to ask you that right now because I think it'll come out as we continue to talk, but people maybe can hold that in mind because it's an important, I think, thing to understand about about the book. But I, I wanted to begin with, um, in the acknowledgement section of the book, you said, um, Lacanian friends and colleagues, okay, quote, Lacanian friends and colleagues were either delighted or horrified by this book a polarisation that is perhaps not unrelated to the subject matter itself. So uh, I guess I don't, didn't have enough background in the controversies around jouissance or the I don't yeah. know if we could say the politics, but what did you mean by
1: that? It, it wasn't so much a controversy around jouissance because there hasn't really been one. Um, it's more the fact that in the Lacanian world, we have a tendency to avoid any kind of critical discourse So you're allowed to say that before the early 60s, Lacan wasn't as precise as he would be later, but you're not really allowed to say that he got anything wrong. And all the early work is seen as a kind of prelude to the enlightenment of the work in the 60s and 70s, whereas in other traditions, obviously, we're allowed to criticise Freud, show disagreements with Klein and all the other psychonetic thinkers. So it is a sort of aspect of the Lacanian world for political and one could argue religious reasons as well, that we kind of avoid any criticism. And when I'd done the draft of the book, a few people wrote to me saying, don't publish this, mainly because they argued, first of all, we just don't criticize Lacan. And secondly, because in some parts of the world, there's already so much criticism of psychoanalysis. And usually fairly uninformed criticism, that the idea would be it's not a good idea to add any more criticism even if it comes from within the field. But that, that seems a rather absurd situation. Okay. That that actually helps me a little bit because
2: um yeah, I I did hear on another podcast somebody mentioning the book. Um in a, I guess you'd say, sort of a neutral way, but they seem to imply that it was attacking uh, the concept of juicence, almost. And uh, I don't think that's quite what you're doing. So, uh, again, we'll sort of get into that, I think. But but I wanted to ask you, who's the audience for this book? And as I, right before this podcast, I quickly went on YouTube and was looking back at, uh, there's another really great, Lacanian teacher, Derek Hook, in the United States, who Uh, has a playlist of of several videos on jouissance that's fairly good, sort of introductory. uh, uh, I mean, substantive, but introductory for people who are newer to psychoanalysis or Lacanian psychoanalysis, I think. But who do you think of the audience for this book that you're writing?
1: I mean, the book is really aimed at people who work within the field of Lacanian psychoanalysis, so analysts, students, scholars anyone who uses Lacanian vocabulary, and in particular, the concept of jouissance. So it's really designed for people who are already in the field, who have some kind of grasp of Lacanian concepts, who are readers of Lacan, and it's trying to encourage them to read a little bit more critically and to follow questions rather than closing questions down just because we've got a kind of fancy vocabulary which seems to name the various things that we deal with clinically so it isn't really going to be that accessible to people who don't know anything about lacanian psychoanalysis although there are are plenty of very good introductions and you mentioned Derek Hook's work earlier there are many very good introductions on the internet and published where people can find introductions to Lacan
2: okay yeah um that's that's helpful because i think some when i first saw oh good a book about dreiscent uh i consider myself sort of on the beginning uh maybe a little beyond beginning but sort of uh, in terms of understanding lacanian theory and psychoanalysis um and i i i kind of thought oh this is going to be a book that's really going to um speak to me and it was challenging for me but i think it was probably the right kind of challenging because i was able to to stay with it and uh, find it really Um, really useful in my learning. Um, So there's a kind of a spoiler alert. I don't know if you called it that or that's what I called it near the beginning of the book where uh, not really, but uh, where you, in fact, I, I always appreciate it when people let me know where we're going in in a book or a long argument, Um, you sort of preview your conclusion that quote, we are better served by a plurality of concepts rather than one catch all term unquote. And then you proceed in the next 134 pages of this relatively short book to review Lacan's evolving theorization of jouissance through the various stages of his thinking. Um, and it, it might be tempting for somebody who's not read the book to assume that it's this sort of um, difficulty around the concept of jouissance is, is Lacan's fault because maybe he didn't, you know, define it right or something. But but as I was reading you and seeing how you, as Lacan did, go back to Freud, uh, and seeing how when we go back to Freud, we we come across maybe similarly uh, uh, um, slippery concepts like drive, for instance, which is not always easy to sort of define, and there's different ideas of what the drive is. So, so maybe some of the reason jouissance is a is is a slippery term is because it's related to Freudian slippery terms but what what is your thoughts about why is juice sound so difficult for us? I think
1: the, the the reason that i focused on the concept is precisely because it isn't so difficult in the way that it's currently used that it's become a kind of shorthand to describe many many different and arguably quite different things and so it was really the ease of the use of the concept rather than the difficulty that i'm trying to address in the book because so many different clinical phenomena nowadays are just labeled jouissance any kind of um, overwhelming affects any kind of pleasure tinged activity anything that seems to be going against a person's will or motivation the list goes on and when you study The way in which the term is used, if you do a a kind of sociology of the usage results, you see that it's actually being used to designate quite incompatible reference. And if you then read Lacan and try and explore the genesis, the development of the concept, you see that although it starts out having some fairly precise reference, it later on becomes more and more descriptive and certainly I think the way in which it's used today has lost any rigor and takes us away from the basic questions addressed by Freud and by some of Freud's students as to how can we explain the gravitation combined with repulsion towards certain psychical points, certain behaviors, certain activities, how can we explain the coalescence of pleasure and pain But once we get there, what we find in the Lacanian use is that people aren't very interested in looking for further differentiations. For example, the differentiation between pleasure mixed with pain, pleasure about pain, pleasure as a sequel to pain, pain as a sequel to pleasure, and so on. And it's also obviously an open question whether the two terms, pleasure and pain, are really the most adequate here in order to to try to speak about what happens clinically? The, the kind of questions that we're trying to address, because the lack of the one doesn't always mean the presence of the other, and vice versa with pleasure and pain. It, it's sort of too simplistic to reduce the whole clinical field to questions of you know pleasure or pain, the presence or absence of one or the other. They're the, the more complicated affective structures and structures of innovation that really call out for more research and exploration.
2: Yeah. Okay. So there we came back to um, the idea about uh, how it's used descriptively. So I guess to sort of put it in my simplistic sort of way of understanding. So I think in, in the clinic, in our work with patients, we often see this phenomenon where there seems to be something pleasurable happening around something painful or some enjoyment. Um, And uh, so it's very easy immediately to go, oh, that's jouissance. Um, But I think that that would be a descriptive, am I right? That would be sort of a descriptive use. That might be
1: an okay use of the term if we are then Mm -hmm. encouraged to think about why the person is engaged in that behavior and how it came to evolve in their life, what psychical forces, what processes have crystallized in order to create that, which is really what Freud was trying to explore in in much of his work, from the early work to to really the, the last work in the 1930s. But in the kind of current Lacanian world, if we meet a patient who's doing something that seems to bring them a certain amount of pleasure but actually with a big load of pain as well we just tend to label it oh that's an example of jouissance without really going further to try to see what processes have generated that that strange satisfaction
2: yeah okay well good so that brings us to um i guess uh the, back to freud and um you uh somewhere near the beginning of the book um you you talk about quote a very nice freudian theory of jouissance i guess that was on page 12 um, where i guess if freud didn't use the word jouissance right but um, but he talks about a uh, this this symptom um, in a way that sound which is a nice theory of jouissance i guess uh, you say which provides a quote a solid explanation of why what is experienced consciously as suffering involves a repudiated enjoyment," unquote. So maybe you could refresh our memory for about the Freudian theory of the symptom, because I guess that's what you're saying here, is that it's a good, it's a theory of jouissance. Um, Yeah,
1: Yeah, it's a theory that Freud elaborates in order to explain what he calls the strange satisfaction, the unrecognizable satisfaction in people's symptomology and he starts this is in the introductory lectures with a very simple schema a schema of libido and frustration and he sees libido on on, on a, in a in a in a sort of unipolar sense as a kind of primary gravitation towards an object on a more or less oral model when that quest for satisfaction is frustrated freud thinks the libido then seeks alternative pathways It seeks to resurrect infantile sources of satisfaction, and it does so through the memory that we might have of certain scenes from our childhood or from things seen or heard subsequently. And Freud's basic idea is that we have unconscious fantasies which act like a kind of scaffolding that allow this libido that's searching for new pathways to to find a new route, to, to find new ways back to points of satisfaction linked to childhood. The problem is this new construction of pathways that the libido is flowing down, to use Freud's language, generates a violent opposition from other parts of the psychical apparatus, which aren't too happy about this, that introduce reprimands and punishments, which means that ultimately the symptom is a kind of combo, it's a mix of both the sought-after satisfaction and a punishment for that and a defense against it. So it's quite a complicated model. And Freud then adds that in addition to this, because the infantile satisfaction at stake in a symptom is represented as fulfilled, this means that it will have to take either a very compressed form compressed to a single bodily innovation, as you might find in hysteria, or it will be restricted to a small detail of the whole more general libidinal complex, as you find in obsessional neurosis. So basically, Freud's model is one of libido, frustration, symptom construction. The symptom is a way of trying to access an original satisfaction. But because there's so much opposition to that from other parts of the psyche, the symptom factors into itself what Freud calls distortions and mitigations, which make that satisfaction unrecognisable. So it's essentially a theory of of conflict between different psychical processes and encryption. The original satisfaction is something that we can no longer recognise and we feel consciously in the symptom as pain or suffering. So really, Freud's problem is how, how to explain this affective transformation. So we have a very neat theory about how symptoms are built and why what someone will experience consciously as suffering or pain, in fact, involves a repudiated enjoyment. So
2: that is so neat, and so, this is, I guess, kind of a rhetorical question. I think I know the answer. But why don't we just stick and say that's jouissance. There, there's there's a clear oh, right theorization. Right. So what, what's wrong yeah, with just why not? I mean, that? That, <laughs> would
1: be, that would be a nice solution. We could say, well, let's stop there and call that jouissance. Great. And then we can find some other terms for all the other things that we call jouissance. Mm. And there's plenty of other things. But okay. one of the things that I'm interested in in the book is... What is perhaps left out or not really developed in that first Freudian theory? Essentially, two two different elements there. First of all, the original frustration that sets this whole process in motion, arguably, Freud's students claimed, generates rage and perhaps hatred. And and what happens to that rage and hatred? What are the, the... What's the fate of those feelings? Are they also factored into the symptom? Are they encrypted? Do they go away? Are they repressed? So there's the whole question of the effects of the initial frustration, which was, again, a a big topic in British psychoanalysis. And then perhaps even more importantly than that, I mentioned earlier on that Freud's model of libido is more or less unipolar. Yeah, It's a kind of gravitation towards satisfaction. But what many of Freud's students pointed out in in both Europe and in the States was that we could argue that the original effects of frustration very, very early on in life mean that there's an intense ambivalence that commands the very creation of libido. That libido isn't a kind of biological force that's there from the start. It's something that's forged through our early interactions with our caregivers And within those interactions, we're going to have complicated mixtures of pleasure and pain, satisfaction and suffering, that perhaps the concept of libido, when we see it as a single, one-dimensional force, obscures. So in the development given to this by Karen Stephen, who I devote a fair bit of space to in the book. She argued that the early experiences in the relation of the child to the caregiver, primarily the mother, will involve fusions of pleasure, hatred, rage, enjoyment and pain. If, for example, the baby experiences a temporary suffocation at the breast, this will mean that its search for satisfaction might also be tinged with fear and terror. And her argument is that rather than separating these experiences, we need to see libido as essentially a hybrid made up of both attraction and repulsion, the effort to absorb and to push away, the effort to cancel and to preserve, fondness and revenge. All the polarities that we like for many reasons to keep separate she argues, and other analysts as well argued, we should see all those as being, in a sense, fused in an original notion of libido. And, and Freud is aware of this. And in the 1920s, he says, um, in a little comment, that he, he doesn't accept what he calls an original bipolarity in the nature of the libido. Yeah, And the real question is there. Do we see the libido as a single instrumental force on this perhaps rather simplistic model of a baby searching for satisfaction at the nipple? Or do we see things as much more complicated so that that original satisfaction is also tinged with refusal, repudiation, disgust, fear, perhaps some archaic form of anxiety? And it was following that latter question that you find a lot of the, to my mind, very important innovations in the work of the post Freudians. Uh-huh.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full nineties throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
2: planning for what's next and how to save for it. That's where bank of America can help for your financial to do's bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 seven in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bank slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply bank of America and a member FDSE. Um, yeah, that's very useful because, um, the original, then the, what do we call it? The neat theory of Freudian um is based on that libido as just seeking satisfaction. And um, I know in, in my patients, when I, when I try to just stick with that, it always seems like, but there's something more going on. It's, it's not always easy to find the, the, the seeking for pleasure or sexual repressed sexual satisfaction. Mm-hmm. So this adds in this whole other element of aggression and, hatred that could be, um, in the symptom too. Um, so you say that in too many cases, writers and clinicians use the term jouissance in a way that obscures the relation to the other hidden beneath what is presented, hidden beneath what is presented as a non-relational auto erotic satisfaction. Can you yeah,
1: I think this is another um, very important omission in a loss of Lacanian psychoanalysis. It's more recognised in, in US and, and, to a certain extent, British psychoanalysis. But it's the idea that very often, when we seem to be witnessing someone's self-enclosed satisfaction, their kind of so-called regression to an abidnal object maybe linked to something to do with eating or drinking or watching or looking or hearing, all the different Freudian drives that one could think of here. We tend to oppose that to a more dialogic relation to the other. It's the idea that the subject is kind of cut off in what people call an autistic jouissance, which short-circuits the relation the object relation, you could call it, to the other. And again, it's a useful shorthand for some clinical phenomena. But when we actually look at what Freud has to say about the autoerotic dimension, and later writers, especially Karen Stephen and Barlint, for example, they're much more careful. And what they show, very convincingly, is the way that a baby and child and an adult's body isn't something that is in any way entirely self-enclosed, but because of the early relations with our caregivers, their responses and their failures to respond to us become inscribed on and within the body. This was a a, a fundamental idea that, that Karen Stephen develops and that Harry Stack Sullivan developed in America. Sullivan proposed that we give up the term erogenous zones and speak instead of what he called zones of interaction, because he argued that what he termed the symbolic segregation of the body early in life occurs through our interaction with the attention, interests, and preoccupations that our caregivers have towards our bodies as infants. So to take a very simple example, if a parent has the power to soothe a feeling of internal tension or pain, let's say by feeding you or singing to you or caressing to you, any state of bodily tension or pain that one is unable to shake off through movement or through some kind of stimulation can be felt as the failure of that other. But rather than seeing that as something that's, in a sense, separate from the subject. What, what child analysts and, and other analysts of working with adults have shown over many, many years is that these experiences are actually felt in the body itself. Yeah, So that points on our own bodies are felt as points of the other's presence or absence. So that the other's way of handling us, speaking to us, looking at us, caressing us, singing to us, all the different things that make up the early relation of a child to most often its mother, all of those things will make up, will constitute, will construct our bodies, which means that then, in the next step of the argument, when it seems as if we're stimulating our bodies in an autoerotic way, cut off from the other, in fact, those actions might be directed to the other. I quote um, the writer Terry Cheney in my book who describes the way how when she would cut into her own body with a knife, she felt as if she was actually cutting her mother because she felt that her body was almost entirely her mother's own possession, her mother's own creation. So the very fabric of her body was in fact equated with her mother. So when we see someone supposedly turned in on themselves in some kind of autoerotic activity, the argument of Stephen, of Barland and many others was that actually the act might be one of reprisal or revenge or solicitation perhaps, but it'll be something which is inscribed within an object relation. It won't be something that's cut off from the link to the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: My background is in it is in Kleinian theory where where there's this idea of the unconscious fantasy which i saw um a woman named rachel Blass, who wrote a great article in the for the ijp on unconscious fantasy was making a point fantasy is always relational it yeah. always is a an i and a, a you and it um and that carries some kind of meaning about them the i and the you
1: mm-hmm.
2: and it seems, seems like it's a very similar a bridge concept maybe of what what you're saying
1: yeah i mean it's the idea that that you find in freud that you don't move from an autoerotic relation to yourself to an object relation but that you start with some kind of rudimentary object relation and the autoerotic dimension is built up from that and always includes within it the traces of the early object relation Mm -hmm.
2: um
1: so let's see
2: I wrote out these questions partly because, as I said, I'm sort of beginning a beginning like and so I wanted to sort of get precise. But it seems to me that in this book, you're doing something more than just um, denouncing the way the word jouissance is often wrongly used. You're also showing us page after page how the concept can open up avenues for research about, quote, how patterns of innervation in the body are built and mediated by structures, unquote. Um, so that, that innervations, and you've used it in this interview. Can you talk more about your um, the use of that word, um, patterns of innervation in the body? Uh, let's see. So, so your book is not only a negative critique of the concept, uh, maybe that's not the right way to say it, but also a pathway for rehabilitation of the concept. Um, that bodily innervations, a phrase that we don't often hear in the psychoanalytic literature, features prominently in the book.
1: Yeah, I mean, in a way, these are all questions that are, are central to Freud's, you know, the 1905 three essays on sexual theory and its successive updates over the years. Freud is very, very careful with both that book and the dream book to go back to them again and again, adding footnotes, adding paragraphs into the main text in a way that he doesn't do with most of his other writings. I think it was really the interpretation of dreams and the three essays that he felt were fundamental for psychonetic theory, which is why he went back to those two texts again and again. And If you look at the first edition of the three essays, it's absolutely tiny. It's like a pamphlet. And then 20 years later, it's grown to book length. And throughout that text, that, that crucial text, you find questions that Freud is asking about how excitation is registered, processed, structured in the body. What's the difference, for example, he asks, between sexual satisfaction and sexual excitation? What limit and endpoints are there for both of these? Do they coincide? Do they not coincide? What can explain the sudden de-innovation of certain parts of the body? What can explain, in contrast, the sudden innovation? He gives certain answers to these questions in the book, but he also asks a lot of questions that remain largely unanswered. And yet there's a huge amount of research in the history of psychoanalysis addressing those questions that it seems a great pity that we have a tendency to forget about today. So the book is also encouraging people to go back to early theoreticians, to the post-Freudian writers, to see what they had to say about these questions And then also to think about other perhaps more recent questions that weren't posed in in the three essays early in the history of psychoanalysis about different kinds of bodily experience, questions to do with orgasm, questions to do with excitement, questions to do with the loss of excitement, lots and lots of different things around the question of sexuality and how the body becomes sexual.
2: Yeah that's uh, one of the things that was interesting to me is one of the popular notions of lacanian psychoanalysis is that it's very abstract and intellectual and it has to do with the symbolic and, and that where is the body where is affect that's something you hear people say sometimes but your book <laughs> focuses very much on these these bodily um aspects of of this psychoanalytic subject i guess you could say um so let me move on to um Let's see. In roughly the, th- the first third of your book, you take a critical look at some of Lacan's early theorizations of Jouissan. so I guess that's fair to say, what you call his theory of libidinal distribution. This section includes um, a real critique of the arguments that sustain Lacan's theory of the mirror stage. It seems like you're very critical of that theory, um, including the idea that the primary pathway of libidinal cathexis is specular. Then you go on to review his next two stages of, of Jouissance, the Hegelian formulation, um, and then the framing of Jouissance in terms of the thing and the object. Um, and those two sections were really delightful, to, easy for, for me to follow. You don't seem to quibble much with Lacan's theory in those two sections. Um, so am I, am I following you in terms of how you're progressing through Lacan's theory? And- <laughs>
1: yeah, kind of. I mean, the, With the mirror phase theory, I mean, there's a kind of mea culpa there as well, because for years I've been running through expositions of the mirror phase based on what Lacan had to say about it, rather than actually looking at data from working with children and from the work of psychologists and other analysts who've looked at this perhaps more closely, And I think, you know, Lackall gets the idea of the mirror phase not by observing babies and infants, but from reading books. He takes it from other authors and then gives it his own spin. It's a lot more complicated than we usually make it appear to be. And in the book, I look at the many different differentiations in a baby and an infant's relation to reflecting surfaces and mirror identification. So I try and bring in other research that shows that there are a lot more things going on in the first year and a half, two years of life than Lacan's exposition makes out. So there's that critique. Then there's the question, you know, is the specular pathway really the privileged route of libidinal investment? And, you know, certainly one could argue it plays an important part for sure. But I think that risks neglecting the other very important bodily processes, such as the use of the musculature and especially the hands operating in the first few years of life, which also, and arguably in a comparable sense, have a role to play in the distribution of libido. So again, I think we're a little bit hypnotized by the mirror phase theory to argue that all the libido goes through the specular pathway, but then you know, there's a little bit that remains that isn't included in the image. And Lacan obviously has various developments around that that I talk about in the book. If we then move on to the work in the, the later 50s, early 60s, around the thing and the object A, I mean, you say I don't have a lot of quibbles with that. I mean, there's some um, lovely things there in Lacan's commentaries. But one of the problems that, again, I hope, is clear um, in the book, is that really, what we end up with there is something very similar to the rather simplistic Freudian model of an excess of energy in the psychical apparatus, which overwhelms the various systems that have been constructed, and jouissance is indeed often defined as a too much, something that's too much to bear, too much to enjoy, too much to think, too much to imagine. And without denying the importance of limits and different notions of a beyond in people's experience and in psychical structure, there's a kind of danger here of just using the term jouissance to revive the old simplistic Freudian model of an excess of psychical energy. Because when you look at the way in which the term is used, it so often is really, it evokes the Freudian idea of libido as a finite quantity operating in a bounded space. So you invest something libidinally, and if something challenges that investment, then the libido flows onto something else. So it's always the same libido and the same quantity of libido that's being shunted from one thing to the other. But again, as many, I mean, the real critique here comes from the American analysts of the 40s, 50s, and 60s, who pointed out that if we can see these processes clinically, it doesn't mean that we should be talking about the libido as a kind of finite substance that's being pushed around like putty. And to say that the libido is withdrawn from one place and then moved to another place is rather different from saying that one point might be equated symbolically with another point that there might be symbolic processes operating which are different from energetic processes and a a large part of the American critique from the 40s to the 60s focused on the use of the, the language of energetics and argued for a more subtle way of talking about symbolic displacements and the use of language and symbols really exactly as Lacan would argue for. But the situation we have today is that we use resource in a sense, very similar to that early Freudian energetic notion. So the, the books, again, encouraging a critique of that.
2: Uh
1: uh-huh. Yeah.
2: And just an aside, um, your reference to uh, American analysts of the, what did you say? Forties, fifties and sixties. Uh, I've, I've, found it quite curious. You don't have a reference section in the book, but you put the references in footnotes and there were lots of references to authors. I don't typically see as I'm reading, I don't know, whatever I read, but more sort of standard psychoanalytic sort of literature. Um, And people going back to the thirties, just a lot of uh, unusual, not the typically cited references. Um, has anybody else had that impression or do you have any thoughts about that?
1: Well, I, I like reading old psychoanalytic books and journals. Um, that's something I've always been fascinated by. And so I'm always you know, looking at old journals, old books. Um, and one of the things you find that's very interesting is that our histories of psychoanalysis tend to be based on sources that are within our field so the psychoanalytic journals but if you want to do a proper history you need to look at the medical journals as well because a lot of analysts from the 1910s onwards would publish their work not only in the analytic journals but also in the medical journals especially when they were working with what would be construed at the time as atypical cases yeah so you find a lot of stuff published very early on where analysts are working with psychotic subjects or, or people with the kind of difficulties that the history, say, only became dealt with by psychoanalysis in the 1950s or 60s or 70s. You find that all much, much earlier if you cast your net more widely and just look at the different kinds of forums in which these discussions were taking place. And so you really get to a, a different kind of history. And and that's one of the things that... Um, has always been very important to me, is to look at psychonetic history in order to contextualize what people are doing. And, and the same with Lacan. That Usually we decontextualize Lacan. And another thing that I'm trying to do in the book is to encourage people to read his work alongside the work of his contemporaries. Contemporaries in America, in England, in France, in other countries, in order to better understand the historical framework in which these ideas are being developed.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah, I, I quite enjoyed. Uh, I found it really refreshing to be hearing some some new voices uh, um, and the way you brought them in. Um, so, okay, so so then I think through the book you're tracing the development of Lacan's theories of jouissance. And in one of the final sections of the book, you, you arrive at the early 1970s when Lacan wrote about feminine jouissance in Encore. This is another section where you seem to be very critical of the theory. One of the ideas in Encore is that women experience a powerful jouissance, but are unable to say anything about it. And you react to this idea by saying, doesn't this just replicate the familiar trope of the woman as enigma? while at the same time managing to ignore the very rich and precise formulations about arousal and sexuality that women have made and continue to make. It is just bizarre to say that women have not managed to articulate anything about their experience of the other jouissance, as if to cancel not only their speech, but so much of their literary, poetic, and artistic productions. So, Okay, so I think I'm correct that this quote you're it's kind of a way of repeating the argument in the book, which is that the concept of jouissance is wrongly used when it obscures the structurally produced specificities of bodily arousal rather than illuminating them. Thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, I think that, um, unfortunately, you know, by the early 70s, Lacan's work becomes less rigorous than it had been in the 1950s. And the, the seminar encore is, is often seen as a, a kind of, you know, summit of sophisticated theorising. There's a lot of fancy logic and, and pseudo-mathematics in it, which which male analysts and male readers find very exciting and they like to endlessly reproduce and do commentaries on in a kind of masturbatory way. But when you actually look at what I call saying, it's incredibly simplistic and it's really, in many senses, um, disrespectful of women and women's productions. You're saying that women haven't managed to articulate anything about this experience of the other jouissance. And if you took seriously what he says about the other jouissance, you can find, you know, not only in, in the speech of women, but in the writing, the art, the, the cultural productions of women for centuries. Examples of what they supposedly haven't said, but it just, it's just—it's just a point in a long trajectory in Lacan's work where there is a lack of respect for what women do and what they've produced analytically. As early as 1960, Lacan says he's still waiting for women to contribute something to psychoanalysis. Yeah, and he's saying that to a room which includes women who were his patients, his supervisees people who'd sent him their books and their articles, you know, we we know. Um, So there's an extraordinary lack of respect there for other thinkers and especially for for female ones. So I think that, you know, there's some interesting things in Encore, but ultimately, you know, it's a privileged guy making some big fancy pronouncements telling women what, what they are and I do think that seminar should be read with a great deal of skepticism and critique. And there should be an openness to read what women analysts and women writing outside our field have to say about their experience of the body and their theorizations of bodily and psychical processes. So we be- we
2: began this interview, you mentioned how it's not considered kosher to criticize Lacan. So, um, is this, is this book going to get you into trouble? <laughs> Maybe you're well, beyond being in trouble. but
1: Not, not really, no. I mean, um, I think that, you know, what the book aims to do is to encourage a kind of a, a critical way of reading Lacan and contextualising Lacan and reading other authors. Yeah, So it's not just about getting people to say, well, Lacan might have been wrong about this, but it's also to encourage people to read other authors that they might never even have come across before. Yeah, there's a lot of um, references to, to other analytic thinkers mm-hmm. in the book. I mean, to the extent that Lacanian groups, for the most part, are governed by religious and political considerations, then obviously, you know, the book will just be ignored. I assume it will just be ignored, but. Nowadays, you know, there's quite a few groups in different countries in America, over here, in England, um, in France, certainly in in Spain, in Latin America, where there's more of an openness that you're actually able to say, well, you know, maybe this idea needs to be revised or or maybe it isn't actually correct. In those groups, there's there's a sort of growing openness that, that you see, you know, more and more seminars advertised nowadays where there's some kind of critical perspective and an effort to engage with thinkers from other traditions rather than just sort of dismissing them as idiots, which has been the kind of practice in the Lacanian world for for decades now.
2: And as we're winding down here, I wanted to think of or just talk about your writing style a little bit. Um, I don't know, but I'm guessing you're probably one of the best-selling Lacanian authors out there. Um, and that, that may have something to do with how, what a great writer you are. And, uh, I, uh, discovered that when I read your first book, what is madness? Um, which was such a delight, but, and, and so my, it's interesting reading this book. It's so scholarly, superbly scholarly and yet, um, I was trying to find the quality. There, there are lyrical sections um, that are really beautiful, but there's, there's a lot of just things that just made me laugh. Um, and I almost, the, the thing, the idea that kept coming to mind was like, it's a delightful kind of romp through, <laughs> through psychoanalytic theory. Um, it has that little bit of that lighthearted quality to it. And so I just wondered if you had any thoughts about your, your writing.
1: Well, It's very nice um, to hear those kind words about my style. Thank you. Um, I mean, I think the, the style, it's just something that comes from reading a lot of psychoanalysis, listening to people talking. And I think I often try when I'm writing to capture the quality of having a conversation. So it's, it's less a sort of academic style prose and it's more, you know, we're moving from one thing to the other in the way that one might do when one's in a dialogue with someone. Um, it, it, in terms of um, the other things that are, in a way have sort of shaped the the writing style, I spent a lot of time and still do when when time permits, reading um uh, late 18th and early 19th century essays which I find quite delightful to read um and so maybe some of that filters through to the um the style in the writing perhaps but th- those are the things that i I enjoy most reading is um you know late late 18th early 19th essays. And, and obviously, psychoanalytic literature right from the early days up until today.
2: Are you working on any other books at the moment? or I, I've just had a little book out
1: in, um, in France, which is called um, Relire le Petit Anse, which is a rereading of the Little Hans case. And it kind of um, offers a critique of the usual Lacanian expositions of the case looks at Lacan's reading from the 1950s and adds to that what we've learned from the Freud archives as they've been de-restricted since then and the work of some very fine historians who've written about Hans in in the last 15 years. So what I'm trying to do is is kind of bring together the Lacanian stuff and the more recent historical stuff and to see how that allows us to reread the case So that's just out in France. It's also out as an uh, e-book in English called Rereading Little Hands. And you can get that on the website of CIFAR, the Center for Freudian Analysis and Research. Did you write the book in English or in French? I wrote it in English and they they did a very nice translation into French. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much um,
2: for taking your time to talk about your book. Great. Thank you very much, Philip. So you've been listening to an interview with um, Darian Leader about his book, Jouissance, Sexuality, Suffering, and Satisfaction, here at the New Books and Psychoanalysis um, podcast, a channel of the New Books Network. So please contact me at philipjlance at gmail.com to let me know your thoughts and questions about the show. And thanks for listening. Bye-bye.